Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Our podcast explores the center and fringe of contemporary art scenes around the world. Today, we're talking about the symbolism of statues and monuments. In this moment, many are demanding the removal of memorials believed to perpetuate a legacy of systemic racial and ethnic injustice. Recent acts of violence against blacks in the United States have brought these memorials to the center of a nationwide debate. On Memorial Day in the year 2020, Minneapolis police killed a black man named George Floyd. The public incident ignited the resurgence of a 21st century civil rights movement known as Black Lives Matter. In 2013, with use of the hashtag Black Lives Matter, thousands responded on social media to the acquittal of a white man, George Zimmerman. He had been charged with the shooting death of black teen Trayvon Martin. Black Lives Matter is now the leading force behind massive protests across the U.S. and abroad. Crowds are toppling statues honoring colonizers, slaveholders, and Confederate heroes. The controversial figures have become a cultural flashpoint. Social justice advocates have contested these symbolic sculptures for decades. Let's look back to 2014 for one example, when artist William Cordova and his collaborators staged an unannounced public declaration of liberty and justice. They chose to make their statement at the site of a towering statue of Confederate leader Robert E. Lee in New Orleans. Born in Lima, Peru, and based in Miami, New York, and Lima, Cordova is known as a cultural practitioner. We call him to hear the story behind this communal intervention. I've always worked and thought outside of the arts. The more that I um, developed as a practitioner, the more I realized that there's all these boundaries all these categories that would either hold me back or lessen my output or expression. My conclusion was a cultural practitioner, not cultural producer, because that implies that I'm producing something for something or someone. I'll be the worker bee, but not for somebody else's benefits, but for the community's benefits. That perspective really resonates for me. Because like you, I'm very interested in marginalized histories and communities that don't necessarily get a voice in the conversations that are relevant to their lives. I was reading the catalog for your 2018 exhibition at the Paris Art Museum in Miami. Maria Elena Ortiz, the curator, was writing about your desire and ability to generate new images and actions instead of focusing on images and histories of suffering that you were 
creating new narratives of empowerment? As a practitioner, I'm exposed to a lot of things, and I expose myself intentionally to a lot of things. I tend to see a lot of harm in perpetuating imagery of pain, of violence. Let's talk about the staged intervention that you did in New Orleans, 2014, with a local band, the Soul Rebels Brass Band, in a space that faced a colossal Robert E. Lee statue in the city center. I understand you had a five-year relationship with this band before this enactment, the silent parade. The origins started in 2006 at the Headlands Artist Residency in Sausalito, California, where I met Monique Moss, a choreographer, dancer from New Orleans. Our ideas complemented each other, our choreography and a lot of my projects. And in 2009, I uh, did a residency at Louisiana Artworks in New Orleans. It was in Lee Circle, across the street from the Robert E. Lee statue. I was there for about two months at the residency. And during my stay, Monique and I had conversations about the large presence of Confederate generals and their achievements throughout New Orleans and Louisiana in general. But there was no balance of representation for the residents of New Orleans. Meaning to say that there were only Confederate generals, but there was no Asian, Native American. Black representations to uh, create a balance of who's being represented, who's being valued. And Monique's brother, Derek Moss, has a band, the Soul Rebels Brass Band, based in New Orleans, but they travel throughout the world. And so the three of us got to talking in 2009 about doing an intervention with the band. We weren't able to do the performance piece at Lee Circle until 2014 because one of us usually had prior commitment. What formed the Silent Parade documentary eventually evolved from three sources. Films like uh, PM, an unreleased film by um, Jean-Luc Godard and E.A. Pennybaker because Godard abandoned the film. Penny Baker tried to finish it. And Penny Baker was also a teacher of mine at Yale University. And that was a film I made in 1968 where the Jefferson airplane going on the rooftop of a New York building and playing a concert there. And one of the members was arrested. And then in January 69, the Beatles filmed Let It Be, released a year later in 1970. And that included their last ever performance, which was in the rooftop of their headquarters, the um, Savile Row building, where they gave a 30-minute concert. And police also came up there. Nobody was arrested because they were the Beatles. But it shut down the concert. And that's how the film went. But in the summer of 1969, The Last Poets, a group of poets from um, Harlem, Manhattan, did a concert on a rooftop in the Lower East Side. One of the camera people was uh, D.A. Pennybaker, again. And so that film was released in 1970 as well, right on 
all these films influence this kind of civil disobedience response by the Soul Rebel Band in 2014 when we did the film, the documentary. We wanted to create something, an intervention. We wanted to create an, an ephemeral monument that could be captured with video cameras of this collective of individuals responding to the presence of Robert E. Lee, a face-off. We basically broke into the Louisiana Artworks building. By then, the residency had been shut down. They closed up that building in 2011. So um, we went to the back and just accessed the building really fast. We only had one shot doing this. My friend Monique Walton, who's a filmmaker in Austin, was the main camera person and the editor. Monique Moss was the producer. Michigo Kurise, a videographer from Miami, an artist, was there to assist in uh, documenting the, the event from the rooftop. We audio recorded it and video recorded with five cameras. Ronnie Quevedo was the other camera person. He's a visual artist in New York. Overall, it was like 30 minutes, the entire event of breaking in, performing, and then exiting the building as fast as possible. The way you staged it, the rebels climb the stairs and go onto the roof and assemble in a row facing the monument. The Soul Rebels performed two pieces facing the statue of Robert E. Lee. They wanted to respond to his presence, to that energy, by bringing in a more constructive energy, an energy of defiance. And then their, their conclusion was to uh, do a, an abstract composition that they made up right there, an improvisational piece, transcending the performance, the sounds, the energy, the rhythms, a form that couldn't be defined, uh, a poetic gesture. That type of abstraction is essential in, in, in combating any kind of rigid representation of uh, oppression because uh, it's more fluid. That was it. When we left, and everybody went back home to the cities and states the next morning. We weren't sure what we had. Monique Walton, the filmmaker, and I corresponded and constructed the uh, documentary. We just didn't have any idea that what we were doing within short time reflect something that was going to occur throughout the country and keep manifesting. Exactly. How would we know what was going to happen next? But it seems as if you did. A lot of the projects that I've worked on and created or collaborated in address a lot of topics and themes 
that are concerned, not only in this country, but other places. But they're not motivated by fashions or trends. They're not motivated by what's popular. They're motivated by needs of access, equilibrium. They're motivated just by the sense of wanting to be able to, to breathe properly and not necessarily conform. I appreciate that you've made a determination that the video is not online. It is only screened in certain spaces and times. The manifestation of a monument itself. Yeah, that idea comes from third cinema concepts that were created as a manifesto back in the late 60s, 1969 in Argentina. Although the idea of third cinema has existed before, basically films that represent people of color outside of a Hollywood one-dimensional stereotype. Films were being made by independent organizations, groups, collectives, and screened in different towns and villages or cities with makeshift screens, sheets of cloth, and screened from the back of a, a truck or a Jeep for free to the communities. So we wanted to create something that alluded to that. Three years after your performance, that statue was taken away. I remember noticing the empty plinth when I was there for Prospect 4. That statue was taken away by the city and among four other Confederate monuments taken down. That was 2017. 2018, your video was shown at the Paris Art Museum and now 2020, statues and monuments created to honor Confederate heroes and slaveholders are being toppled across the U.S. and abroad. I wanted to talk about this monument that you created with Monique that can be brought to our attention again now and give another perspective on how we can respond to this moment, to the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement to the, the current protest movement, the demise of the statues. How do you see the way forward? I always think it's important to look back historically, to see examples of how things repeat themselves, for better or worse. In Peru, back in 68, 69, during the coup by uh, President Velasco, Velasco decided to take down a lot of monuments that were examples of Spanish conquistadors who oppressed Andeans, Africans, in the Americas, specifically in Peru. He had them taken down. Some of them were melted, and others were put in a large storage space. We can also see that in Germany, happening in the late 40s after the Second World War. Those monuments were destroyed, taken down, melted, or stored, and then became part of re-education. I don't see why that can't be applied in this country. Yeah, I think we just have to look back and see what are the most constructive ways of addressing any of these situations. Uh, in New Orleans, people have for over 100 years been demonstrating, speaking out against these uh, racist monuments. But the state, the government, didn't want to do anything about it. Sometimes when people say, we have to do this peacefully, 
that only works at a certain point. And you have to take it to another level in order for things to change. This country sought independence, not by peacefully protesting, but uh, it seems like there's a double standard that uh, society practices. At the same time, declaring war on everything, war on crime, war on drugs. Every decade has a war against something. So we live in a very extreme, polarized environment. We don't always see those extremes. Going forward, I think we have to look back. We have to see what's been done, not only in this society, in this country. Constructive examples of how to change and find a balance. So if you're going to have a representation of oppression called Robert E. Lee, then we needed to have something that represented the rest of society living in that state, in that city. And that's all that we were looking for when we made this documentary, is to find and create a balance. This is the Fresh Art International Podcast. I'm Kathy Bird. More than a century and a half has passed since the 13th Amendment abolished slavery in the United States. In 1884, after the end of Reconstruction, a monolithic statue of Robert E. Lee was erected in the center of New Orleans as anti-black violence agonized the South. The memorial was among the first of more than 700 monuments to the Confederacy nationwide. The documentary film of the Soul Rebels brass band Face-Off with Lee's statue brings attention to our nation's continued inability to face its history of slavery and racist violence. With their intervention, William Cordova and his collaborators demonstrate the potential for a balanced dialogue about racial equity. Explore other episodes about art and race in America on freshartinternational.com. If you like what you're hearing, please take a minute to subscribe to our podcast anywhere you go to listen. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation, Locust Projects, and the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, and you make Fresh Art International possible. Visit our site to learn more and explore the podcast archive we've been building since 2011. While you're there, Sign up for our latest news and give a donation to support our stories. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk. <laughs>